Hi, everyone, and thanks for joining us on the Think Again podcast. My name is Daniel McCormack, and I'm an economist with Macquarie Asset Management. Today, I'm pleased to say that I'm joined by our China economist, Larry Hu. Larry is regularly quoted in the Financial Times and The Economist and has been a long-time China watcher. So, Larry, um, welcome again to the podcast. We had you on late last year. Um, so, welcome back. Thank you, Daniel. The last time we spoke, which was early October, we talked a lot about Evergrande because at the time that was the big story in China's property market. But since then, the problems beyond just Evergrande. Could, could you give the audience a quick update on how many developers and which developers are facing challenges and what generally is the latest with respect to China's property market? Well, um, I think overall the situation is just getting worse uh, since uh, uh, we talked last time in September. I think that uh, um, developers in China are facing two challenges at this moment. And the first challenger comes from the financing side. On a big background here, um, the majority of property in China is pre-sold in the sense that uh, developer sold the, sell the property, then deliver it uh, uh, maybe two years later, right? So previously developers just use the money, the pre-sale money, and for other usage, right? So, but after the Evergrande episode, uh, local government uh, are very concerned that, uh, you know, if the developer go belly up, then who is responsible for delivering the unfinished projects? So as a result, local government decided to freeze up the pre-sale money for developers, right? That's, that's, that's create a lot of, uh, financing pressure for developers. That's the first challenge. And the second challenge just come from the, just come from the market side, property market side, because uh, since the Evergrande episode last September, China's housing price also started falling from then. So, you know, housing is largely a property um, uh, asset in China, which means that uh, when the asset price is, is are falling, then people tend to postpone their purchase. So over the past few months, we also see the housing market uh, cool down very rapidly, right? It kind of reduce the sales revenue for developers. So in short, sales uh, developers are facing these two challenges. First, they can sell fewer property. And second, if they can sell the property, but they cannot use the money to pay down their debt, right? That's why, you know, over the past few months, uh, we hear uh, lots of um, news on, you know, the distressed uh, developers, things like that. And uh, that's probably going to continue in the next few months because, you know, in the housing market, what we are watching now, there is a self-strengthened a circle between price and the volume, right? When price go down, then people postpone the purchase, then price could go down even more, right? That's the, that's the current situation. But on the other hand, you know, policy clearly on the easing, is easing on the margin, right? So I think it's still too early for China policymakers to stimulate the sector. But on the other hand, they, I think uh, the peak property tightening probably is also behind us, right? Last week, they cut the mortgage rate by 
five bits, you know, it's more about signal than, you know, have some real impact. So, so which means that, uh, you know, the first half of this year is still going to be very difficult for the sector and probably the two key words we're going to hear often in the next, uh, in the coming months is going to be default and the consolidation. Yeah, right. Got it. Um, and I mean, I remember when, you know, when we spoke last time and, and you had some very clear views about how the property market would evolve and how policy would, would evolve in China. If you think back to, to, to your views then, um, has it been worse than you thought? Has it been better than you thought? Or has it turned out roughly in line with what you were thinking back then? Uh, well, you know, I think it's, it's very hard to predict that, you know, property sector just, uh, you know, slumped from last summer. That tipping point is very, very hard to forecast. But uh, I think the development since then has been largely in line with expectation because we had this, we had we we saw this kind of probably down cycle in 2014-15 as well, right? So uh, the script is pretty similar now compared to then. So you know, last uh, September, uh, actually in our last uh, talk, I discussed a note which is titled uh, four property risks," right? I think then the, the four property risks are the systemic risk or like layman moment, right? I make the clear it's, it's unlikely to happen. You know, I don't think we're going to see a meltdown in China, uh, the property sector or even the economy. But on the other hand, you know, the other three risks, such as contingent risk, um, which means that, uh, you know, with Evergrande, uh, with other distressed developers, um, uh, people are gonna kind of get more and more cautious towards the sector and the risk just continuing from one company to the other, that's contingent risk. Also the short-term growth risk, which means that the property down cycle gonna pose um, significant growth pressure on this year and as well long-term growth risk, right? which means that uh, the, I think the property sector probably already reached uh, the historical high and gonna have a gonna trend down in the coming decade. That's what I call long-term growth risk. The other three is contingent risk, short-term growth risk, and the long-term growth risk are real. And uh, and now we are seeing that they are unfolding now. Yeah. And how big is the short-term growth risk? Could you just talk about how big of an impact you think this will have on China's overall growth rate? And what's the sort of fan chart of possibilities around that central estimate? Well, I think, you know, First, I think the property sector is is probably the biggest growth headwind for for China's uh, growth uh, for China's growth this year, right? So I think given the current uh, uh, property down cycle, it can easily trim two to three percentage points uh, from China's uh, GDP growth, right? That's pretty that's pretty significant, right? So and on the other hand, you know, this year China. Also, is also facing a pretty severe COVID shock at this moment, and uh, that's why you know I would say uh, with that. Uh, so I would say that the pol- that's why you know, China pol- property policy is clearly clearly easing on the margin. Although probably that's not enough uh, to stop the property slowdown in first half this year. Yeah, yeah. Maybe we'll get to, get to the policy question um, in a minute, but. I remember 
when we spoke last time, you you know, you were of the view that this was not China's Lehman moment. And, and one of the reasons for that is that the collateral these companies have is land and land, you know, has real value, so to speak. And that provides a sort of nice fallback position that, that backstops against a, a major spiral downwards. Two questions. Firstly, is, is that still your view? It sounds like from your previous comments that it is, but just to confirm that. And secondly, has there been any sort of questionable practices go on within the property sector generally? You know, often when we have these, these sharp turns in sectors, it comes out that there's something questionable been going on either with finances or building or something else. Um, are we likely to see anything like that, do you think? Uh, yeah, I still have such a view. That's why, you know, I would say the two keywords for this year are going to be default and uh, consolidation, right? Uh, the reason we see a lot of um, M&A deals recently, you know, mainly SOE, large developers, um, by small private developers, because uh, the land owned by those small developers are still valuable, and uh, and they are doing a fire sale now. That's why you know the consolidation is going on, and I would expect that's going to continue in the coming months. In the coming months, I think that after this uh, year's property down cycle, I think the China's property market going to be the concentra- the market concentration in China's property among China's developer space is gonna be much higher than before. Right. But during the process, I think one thing um you know makes things slow is uh, the dodgy or you call or you can say the intransparent uh, accounting um practices, right? Which means that uh, you know, over the past few years uh developers uh raise a lot of off balance sheet on debt, which means which mean that they are intransparent and uh, it uh, takes long time for auditing. Right? Also, it will make, make, make a MA a bit risky because you know, the potential buyer really don't know uh, how large the debt you know, owed by the, by, the, by, the, by the potential seller. Right? That's, that's, a, that's an issue. So I would expect that, uh, for instance, Evergrande, you know, I would expect that it's gonna take a, a pretty long time um, for um, for 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 potential buyers to you know fully absorb Evergrande because it has such a maybe one trillion of balance sheet debt, so it just takes time. But uh, but ultimately, I think uh, uh, given you know, I think uh, the land is still valuable, and I think we're gonna see more more and more consolidation in the market. And the Chinese government actually encourage, um, you know, the, such consolidation. That's that's one reason why I think that a Lehman moment is not very not very likely because that's China developers they own land, right? They are not Lehman Brothers, which who owns you know MBS, which uh, which which can be you know was nothing you know in 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 one during the fire sale. Yeah. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, that lack of visibility on, on value is sort of always an issue in, in sectors that experience, you know, sharp downturns and intense stress like this. But um, no, no, it makes a lot of sense. Let's, let's turn to policy. Um, so, you know, policy, an easing cycle has clearly begun in China. China generally eases in a gradual way, right? And that's always served well. 
question, is China easing fast enough given the sort of magnitude of, of the problems in the property sector? Yeah, I think you are right. You know, uh, first, an easing cycle in China has just started, right? So very interestingly, you know, last year, US uh, losing a lot, but last year, China tightened. But uh, I think this year, China is gonna, gonna be in the, a new easing cycle, but the US gonna tighten, right? So, so the biggest two, the, the, the two largest economy had a divergent monetary policy last year and this year. And you're also right that you know, the, in the past, also I think this time is, is the same, that the easing gonna be gradual, right? which means that uh, we are just at the beginning of a easing cycle, which means that, uh, um, okay, credit uh, impulse just starting the upturn trend. And on the other hand, you know, the rate cutting cycle just started. You know, last week, the PBOC cut its policy rate for the first time in two years. And I think in the next two, three quarters, they're gonna continue to cut, right? So it's a new easing cycle, you know, which means that uh, a new credit up cycle and a new rate cutting cycle. Um, again, you know, as just mm, the history suggests that these measures probably are not enough so far, right? I mean, rate cut, uh, I mean, mm, a bit more proactive fiscal spending because uh, and we had this kind of down cycle several times in the past decade. Every time the problem is that uh, even if China government could cut rate, uh, could do a bit more fiscal spending, the problem is that the you know, property plays such a more important role in Chinese economy. So I, I would expect that uh, later this year, uh, they may losing the prop stacking, stimulating the property sector, but uh, that it's still too early at this moment. That's why, you know, uh, we see that stimulus always going to be gradual in the sense that I think they have a target for this year, which is defined the 5% GDP growth for the for the whole year 2022. So later this year, if they find okay the existing measures are not enough, then they're going to do more. So including you know stimulating the property sector, including loosening the control of local government debt. That's something probably they're going to do later this year, and now it's still too early for them to do that. Yeah. Yeah, okay, got it. And are we seeing evidence yet of, of, of knock-on effects from, from the property slowdown? So the kind of things I'm, I'm thinking about here is, you know, the impact on consumption more generally, right? So spending on, on durable goods, but also, you know, impact on local government revenues because land sales are a really uh, important part of, of, of local government revenues, aren't they? And, and are we seeing any any sort of slowdown there? Um, yeah, we we already see local government uh, revenue um, slowing down quickly. You know, since Evergrande saga, and also you know um, the the anecdotal news uh, from the is that uh, you know more and more local government start to cut a salary for their employer, employees. Right. So yeah, that's uh, that that's that's real. And also, as you mentioned, uh, uh, you know, the slowdown in property sector also gonna also is having impact on on consumer discretionary um, items such as uh, air condition, even car sales, things like that. Right. That's real. 
Um, yeah, so I think uh, that's I think uh, at this moment it's happening, but in the coming months that's probably gonna getting even worse, right? That's why you know I would say that uh, uh, later on the Chinese government, if necessary, they probably gonna start to uh, stimulate uh, the property sector. But on the other hand, I would say I would say that uh, you know stimulus property probably is the last resort for China's policymakers. That's why they're gonna wait a bit longer. Right, so it has also happened in the previous down cycle in 2014-15. Right, I think in 20, I think now the property policy stance is very similar to um, what's happened at the end of 2014, and uh, you know they, they they double down on their property easing in early 2015, and I think that's the same thing probably going to happen later this year. Yeah. Yeah, okay. And I mean, we discussed before the impact in the near term on, on growth. Um, you also mentioned earlier that you think that the property sector could have an impact on longer term growth rates, as in the property sector is, is structurally peaking out. You know, is, 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 is that right? And, and how big of an impact do you think this has? Or what, how large an implication does it have for China's long term growth rate? Well, I, I would say that uh, it's been hard to tell because uh, um, because it you know it depends on lots of things. Uh, over the past two decades, you know, China property sector has had a huge bull run, right? But but I think at this time probably it's already hit the historical peak, and in the next uh, one or two decades, probably it's gonna be in the down cycle. But, uh, but but as I said, it's also how how sharp the down cycle is also depends on you know other things like such as urbanization rate, such as uh, um, the policy supports depends on you know when and whether China gonna roll out the property tax, which gonna hurt, which gonna you know lower the property as the the value for property as asset, right? So that, I think that's one thing that that's gonna driven by lots of things, but but. But uh, but uh, broadly speaking, I think that no matter you know how fast it's gonna fall, but I think uh, property is still gonna be and gonna slow down you know in the next one or two decades. Now then, the key question is what's gonna replace property as uh, the main driver uh, for Chinese economy? You know, for for instance, before 2010, you know, exports was a very was a major driver for Chinese economy. Then after 2010. You know, uh, exports slow down a lot. Then you know, infrastructure spending and property spending um, becomes uh, major drivers. But but, I just, but if in the next decade, uh, I don't think exports gonna have a huge bull run in the next decade, given the current state of the global economy, and also uh, property probably gonna gonna slow. You know, in the long term structural downtrend, then what's gonna be the alternative? Right, the easy answer is consumption. Right, uh, but 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 it sounds actually it's much harder than it sounds because because consumption relates to the income distribution in China, right? So that's why you know Chinese government talked about common prosperity last year, uh, which aims to lower the income inequality and boost consumption, right? I, I would think that's a, that's a, that's a, that involves a lot of policy and uh, you know has a lot of uncertainties. But I think that's probably um, the, the the long term 
trajectory, the most likely long-term trajectory, which means that uh, um, property slow down and the consumption maybe pick up pick up a bit to offset uh, the gap. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Got it. I mean, it's very interesting the sort of structural evolutions of, of China's economy over time. Um, Larry, you know, I think this, this um, you know this property market issue is going to be is going to be relevant for investors for a while yet. I mean, you talk about you know the first half of this year, you know, being a period of, of default and, and consolidation. So it will certainly be in the news. So I think we'll we'll check back in again with you in another three or four months. Um, to just see how how things are evolving and and you know whether your view as you've you've articulated today has panned out. You've certainly been on the money both with respect to the evolution of the property market itself and and policy so far. So it would be would be great to do a follow up then. But one last question, you know, before we let you go and just switching away from property, probably the other big risk for China is is around COVID, right? And it's zero COVID policy, which you know initially seemed to be a good policy. I guess question whether in a world of, of Omicron, which is far more transmissible, can China continue to, to maintain its, its zero COVID policy? And if it does, what sort of impact do you think this would have on, on China's growth in, in 2022? Yes, this, I think this is, you're, you're right. This is a very important question at this moment in, every, in everyone's mind. Uh, you know, China reported uh, the first uh, local Omicron case on January 8th. So it's about uh, 20 days ago. And uh, so far, no, I think probably it's still too early to draw any definite answers, but uh, so far the zero COVID policy seems to work and still effective to contain a major Omicron wave. Right? So the first city, hit by Omicron was Tianjin, right? But the new cases in Tianjin went to zero three days ago. So yeah, so I think uh, so, so far it still works, right? I think another concern is that, uh, you know, whether Omicron gonna cause uh, um, another supply, supply chain disruption in China. And uh, so far, I think uh, the, the impact on supply chain is also very limited, you know, just like you know, China had three, four COVID waves last year, and uh, every time uh, the, 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 the impact on supply chain um, is pre was pretty limited last year. I think this time, even Omicron, it looks the same, right? So that's, that's probably what we know so far. And with that, with that in mind, I, I think uh, the chance is very low for China policymakers to give up a zero COVID policy anytime soon, right? Because it's, it still works. Uh, I, so I think it's, actually, I think it's quite likely that uh, they're gonna stick to the zero COVID policy um, by this fall. You know, in this fall, China gonna have the 20th party Congress. That's very important because you know, China gonna have a political power transition in that uh, meeting. So, which means that before that, you know, they want they're gonna be very, very cautious. That's why, I'm, that's why I'm saying that they're gonna stick to the zero COVID policy, um, probably by this fall, and maybe even longer than that, right? That said, I still think that they they they're gonna you know, do some fine tuning regarding the zero COVID policy, you know, especially from second quarter, right? Because um, 
next month we're gonna in February we're gonna have the Beijing Olympic, right? In March, uh, China had gonna have a very important People's Congress, right? So so they so I think they're gonna they're gonna stay cautious in first quarter, but from second quarter I think they can loosen a bit more on the existing policy. For instance, they could uh, you know uh, have more targeted contain, containment measures instead of uh, just lock down the whole city. Right, or you know, they can approve more vaccines, uh, whether it's made in China or not, or you know, they're gonna experimenting with opening the border, you know, especially with Hong Kong, right? That's something probably they're gonna do. But uh, but the bottom line is that uh, you know, given the track record of zero COVID policy and and the recent uh, experience with COVID with Omicron, I think the China policymakers are in no hurry to. To exit the zero COVID policy, so 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 the policy probably going to stay continue to stay there, uh, you know, in the at least in the next six months. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, fingers crossed because obviously, um, you know, China matters for global growth, but also, you know, from a supply chain disruption perspective, it it also matters for for inflation for the rest of the world as well. And inflation is clearly high at the moment, and it's a bit of a policy issue. So we certainly hope that. Omicron doesn't disrupt uh, all the supply chains in China's production too much. Larry, you know, thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. It's always, you know, fascinating to talk to you and um, really appreciate your insights on China. And to our audience, thanks very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. This recording is intended for financial professionals and institutional investors only. This is not intended for use with the general public. The views expressed in this podcast represent those of the speaker and are subject to change. Nothing presented should be construed as a recommendation to purchase or sell any security or follow any investment technique or strategy and does not constitute advice, an advertisement, an invitation, a confirmation, an offer or a solicitation to engage in any investment activity or an offer of any banking or financial service. Throughout this presentation, various securities and companies are referenced. Examples given are for illustrative purposes only and were not chosen based on performance. This is not a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Investing involves risk, including the possible loss of principal. All examples herein are for illustrative purposes only and there can be no assurance that any particular investment objectives will be realized or any investment strategy seeking to achieve such objective will be successful. Past performance is not a reliable indication of future performance. Before acting on any information, you should consider the appropriateness of it with regard to your particular objectives, financial situation and needs, and seek advice. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made as to the accuracy or completeness of the information, opinions, and conclusions presented. In preparing this recording, reliance has been placed without independent verification on the accuracy and the completeness of all information available from external sources. Macquarie Asset Management is the marketing name for the Asset Management Division of Macquarie Group. Investment products and advisory services are distributed and offered by and referred through affiliates, which include Delaware Distributors LP, a registered broker-dealer and member of the Financial Industry Regulatory Authority, and Macquarie Investment Management Business Trust, a Securities and Exchange Commission registered investment advisor. Investment advisory services are provided by a series of Macquarie Investment Management Business Trusts. Other than Macquarie Bank Limited, none of the entities noted in this podcast are authorized deposit-taking institutions for the purposes of the Banking Act of 1959 from the Commonwealth of Australia. The obligations of these entities do not represent deposits or other liabilities of Macquarie Bank Limited. 
Macquarie Bank Limited does not guarantee or otherwise provide assurance in respect of the obligations of these entities unless noted otherwise.